God, we're all uh, here for different reasons. We've all been drawn in different ways. Um, but God, one thing we want to uh, unite us in, in why we're here is is to worship you and to turn towards you. So God, we, we do that together and just affirm uh, who you are and how much we need you and, and just lift you up. And uh, so Lord Jesus, uh, we just pray you, you'd be gr- brought glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Things that last instead of things that don't. One more. She's not even close to yet with any of those. Anybody got a guess? Huh? I'll give you the last one. Reflect more. Reflect more. Top three answers. Risk more. Reflect more. Do things that last. We, we plowed into the parable where Jesus basically said that last one. He said, look, I want you to do things that last. I want you to maximize your life. Don't waste your life. And I want to go deeper into that tonight and look at, at, at some scriptures that I think take that even further. And, I, and I'll give you the heads up. David Yost is going to have trouble staying seated during this, this message. That's the clue where this is going. Okay. Um, because we're going to, and I'm ultimately going to end up with Jesus, but we're going to start in the Old Testament. But I want to show you through the scriptures that whole idea, do things that last, and it does require risking more and reflecting more if you're going to do things that last. The only way you're going to do things that last is if you risk more and reflect what's worth doing. And so this, this is going to be an exercise going through these scriptures of, of the Old Testament and of Jesus' own words saying, let me help you understand what will last, what's worth risking for, and take some time and reflect on this. Is this true about your life? So we're going to start with Psalm 127, if you got your Bible. And uh, we're going to go through this whole psalm. It's only six verses. So we're just going to work through this psalm, but it starts with this idea of not wasting your life. Great verse to start the psalm. What I love about this psalm, the first three verses... And the last three verses, you could easily study separately and think they have nothing to do with each other. When you put them all together, you get a powerful statement about what not wasting your life looks like. So we're going to look at the whole psalm, then we're going to go to some other other scriptures to to show you what it says. Here's the uh, first verse. Let's do verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. And this is a pretty familiar verse. You probably heard this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. This would be the Old Testament answer to the 95-year-old. Look, the only way you're going to do things that last is do things that God's involved with. Unless God's involved with it, heavily involved with it, it's in vain. Uh, the, word, the, the word vain, literal meaning means worthless, empty, a waste. So clearly saying in his verses, look, you can go do things. There's a lot you can get done. But if God's not the one building it, if God's not the one laboring in it, then you're wasting your time. It's in vain. Let's go to the next part of the verse. For he gives to his beloved, or for he gives to his beloved sleep. Okay, this is every new parent's dream verse right here. For he gives to his beloved sleep. So he's saying, so he starts the thing off. Look, your life, the, the investment of your life is, 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 is only worth whatever it is you invested in. That, that's the level of investment and payoff. Then he says, in the middle of that, look, unless God's involved, uh, you're wasting your time, he gives to his beloved sleep. What's he, what's he saying there? Somehow he's saying, look, when, you're do, when God's involved, when God's involved with what you're doing, there's going to be 
rest. There's going to be some deep rest with it. Um, the, the way the Bible translates or the New American Standard uh, translates it, is this. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labor, so to do all the work. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Deuteronomy 33 translates the same thing. Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him, and the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. Here's the literal way you can understand that verse. If you took the Hebrew word in the word picture, it's when, when you do, when God's involved in your project, you're not laboring in vain. Not only are you not laboring in vain, he gives to his beloved in their sleep. It's really this picture of a piggyback ride. It's the best way you can understand the Hebrew word. When God's involved, it's like he puts you on his shoulders. And even when you're not doing anything, when you're asleep, he's still active on your behalf. So he's saying, look, here's the payoff. That's why you want to be involved in what he's involved with. Because when you are, you get to ride on his shoulders. You get, the, you get to rest on his shoulders. Even when you're not doing anything, stuff's getting done. Verse 3. Now he's going to tell us where this goes. And this, this is where the connection comes. Behold. So don't waste your life on things that don't matter. Now he's going to tell us what matters. Behold. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. If you put all this together, what God's saying is don't waste your life. If I'm not involved, you labor in vain. When you do what I'm part of, then I carry you along and I I work with you. What am I involved with? Children. I'm involved with children. Whenever you put your time, and this is what I think you can say based on this verse, whenever you put your time, energy, focus, money, resources, energy into the next generation, into kids, you can know God's involved. You can know God's involved, and he will work on your behalf. That's a powerful concept there in the scriptures. He's not just saying it's a good thing to do. He's saying when you do this, you don't have to worry about wasting your life. It's not in vain. This is where God's active. Next verse tells why. Verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And here, here's what I think we severely misunderstand in the, in the, in the U.S., more than anywhere else, is when this was written to the Hebrews, this wasn't mom and dad thinking about their kids, of, yeah, I got my two kids, and, and, and you're right, God's involved in that. It was the community. It was the community of God's people thought about all the children that way. There, there was no separation of, well, I'm taking care of my kids, and I hope you do yours with yours. It was this concept of the community and saying, why, are, why do the kids matter? Because they're like arrows. Look, there's, there's, there's war out here. There's this battle raging, and you have the arrows that you're going to launch out into this battle, and they are your children. They're the children of the community. And, and that's why they're worth pouring into, because they're like arrows. And the more you sharpen those arrows, shape those arrows to get them straight, make sure they're not, the more you're going to have effect in the battle that's going on. Verse 5, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. There's different size quivers, we've we've decided. Because our family quiver held four. Um, The whole idea, though, here is bigger. It's bigger than my family, your family. It's saying, I'd translate this verse, blessed is the church whose quiver is full of arrows. 
Blessed is the church who is drawing in the next generation and focusing on the next generation, shaping them, pouring into them so they can be launched out. That's the whole idea you get from arrows. They're going to be launched out. So blessed are the people. Blessed is the group. Blessed is the, the family, the church. Blessed is anyone who says, I want to be part of shaping arrows that can be launched out for maximum impact. And God says, you do that, I'm involved. You take risk there, you reflect about how to do that, you're going to do something that lasts. That's the heart that God brings. Let's go to Deuteronomy for a second. Because I'm going to, I'm going to try to, here's what I'm going to try to do in this little talk here. Is just start there. I want you to get that concept of waste. Deuteronomy is going to tell us a little more, well, what's our role as the people of God? Then we're going to go to Jesus' words and say, okay, let's get as practical as we can. What would this mean if a group of people took this seriously and did things different? What would new look like? when it comes to this idea of investing in the next uh, generation. But let's go to Deuteronomy 6. And uh, I think it spells out in Deuteronomy 6, if that's the call, don't waste your life, invest it this way. Deuteronomy 6 says, here's your responsibility in a big overarching way. This is your responsibility when it comes to the next generation. And, I'm, and here's what, it, I'm not talking here to, 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 um, a certain any certain age group, okay? I consider myself, when it comes to this biblical understanding, I'm old, okay? I'm old. I'm in the, the, I need to be devoted to the generation behind me. And so do those of you my age, those of you younger than me, uh, this, is, this is talking to all the people of God, and, and Deuteronomy even more so. He says, okay, people of God, people of Israel, let me tell you what I want. Let me tell you what I expect. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So he's getting ready to tell them about kids. Okay, let me read you the second part of the verse. And then we're going to come back to that. Look at verse 7, 8, and 9. You shall teach them diligently. So this is right after he said, uh, all these words I command you be on your heart. Then he goes and says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, there's two things. This is the people of God getting ready to go in the promised land. God says, look, there's two things I have for you. And this is the part that this somehow has to just sink into us. There's two things I've got to, for you. I want you to love God with all your heart. And then I want you to love, help the next generation love God with all their heart. Those are the two calls. Those are the only two calls God gave to his people. First of all, love me with all your heart. That's why, you know, when you get on an airplane, I always thought this was so weird for so long. But you get on the airplane, they always give you the rules of everything, all the things that nobody pays attention to in the cards and tell you what you got to do, emergency exit and all that. But the only part I always listen to, because I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense, is, is but, you know, if, if in case of loss of air, the oxygen masks are going to drop, before you put that on your kid, make sure you've got yours on. 
And I was like, man, that is so selfish. That's ridiculous. I'm going to let my kid gasp and die and, and meanwhile be sucking up my clean, fresh air. And then you realize, well, I'm not going to do my kid any good if I'm dying off. So it's not selfish. I have to take care of myself first so I can adequately help my kid. That's what God's saying here. That's saying the same thing. He's saying, look, before you can help the kid, the next generation, you've got to be a lover of me. The next generation can't be what, they can't just be taught what it means to, to be a follower of me. They've got to see it. They've got to see it. One friend of mine was telling me about, he was, he was talking to his kid and trying to explain to his kid, and parents always go through this, you're trying to explain to your kid, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? So he's explaining what it means to be a Christian and, and what a Christian believes and does, and kids listen and all this, and dad gets done, he's like, dad, that's really cool. Have I ever met one of these? <laughs> like every parent's nightmare, right? <laughs> Have I ever met one? That's what we don't want happening to our kids. But it's what's happening to kids all the time is they start reading the Bible later on and saying, well, that doesn't match up with what I saw in my home, in my church. I'm reading about these people that were living all out for Jesus and it feels different. What he's telling them first is, look, before you teach your kids a thing, before you tell them how they're supposed to act and live, be a lover of me. Show them what it looks like. Spectators don't beget players. Spectators don't draw a crowd. Spectators don't, don't get anybody in the game. Only those who are playing draw in others. So he gives it there first. And he says, look, your first job is love me with all your heart. Your second job, it's the second set of verses. Let me read them again. You shall teach them diligently. Remember, he's not just talking, he's not talking to parents here. He's talking to the people of God. Love me, then teach them to your children diligently. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you bind them as a sign on your hand, frontlets between your eyes, write them on the doorpost of your house and of your gates. And it goes on, God goes on to say, look, if you're going to have any success as a people, it will only be if you're living this out. If you're loving me with all your heart and you're helping the next generation. Here's how I would understand this. If you boil this down, is that spiritual, spiritual uh, immaturity, you're spiritually immature when you need to be fed. That's what a, an infant is. Spiritual infancy is when you need to be fed. You need somebody to feed you. Spiritual adolescence is when you learn to feed yourself. Spiritual maturity is when you feed others. So I don't have any hesitation to say to people, look, your, your spiritual maturity, if you think you're spiritually mature, yet you're not in an active way, feeding the next generation, you're only as mature as the last person you fed. Don't fool yourself and think you're mature if you've sat in church for years and years and years and just been fed. Or if you have your own thing going on, you and Jesus, but you're not feeding somebody else. You're not actively doing that. That's spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is when, instead of wanting things to react to you and, and come in line for you, you're adjusting to others. 
When you want reality adjust to you, you're immature. When you adjust to the realities around you, that's maturity. That's coming into emotional and spiritual maturity. And so what God, I think, is clearly saying in here, and, and this, when we talk about starting a new church, this is why we're doing this now, is this is bedrock to some of what we believe, is we do not want to create a culture where the, the majority of the people just come to be fed and to receive. We want to create a culture where people say, yeah, I, I have to get that. I have to hear some, some of the word and receive that because I am so active giving it out. I have to receive. I'm not here to just take more in and, 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 and the only word I can think of is leech. Be, be leeching off. I'm here to give. I'm here to give. I want to grow. The way you grow the most is when you give the most away. The more you teach, the more you give out, the more you train, the more you disciple, the hungrier you are. You have to receive more. And it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship that, that God's designed, and that's why, why he put it that way. And so that, that is foundational to what, what we're going to be about, is, is, is saying, look, if you're here, and you're here for any period of time, then we're counting on that as you're saying, I'm in. I'm in to living our lives and doing church for the next generation. I want to help shape and launch arrows out. How? How do you do that? How do we do that? Let's go to the words of Jesus. Jesus, as you may or may not know, had a lot to say about the next generation. He talked about them a lot with his disciples and followers. He referenced the next generation, had kids come in his, in his midst and talked about them. I'm going to go through three quick places where Jesus said something really profound about, about the next generation to his followers. And I think there's three things that, that start making this a little more practical. Then I'm going to just take a few minutes and say, here's some of the things we're thinking about just on a really practical level as we move to getting a little more uh, organized in what we're doing. But we want to hear your thoughts. I'm hoping this stirs up a bunch in, in you and, and you come up with better ideas than ours. But I'm going to share some of them here in a minute. But let's go with, see what Jesus says first. Three things. Okay, the first one comes out of Matthew 18, 10. And here's what I'd say. I'd say the first thing Jesus is saying when he's talking to his followers, okay? So I'm going to say, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you join in with what we're doing, this is what he'd say to us. This is the mentality we want to have towards the next generation is honor them. Honor them. Here's what he says. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. He has some little kids in his midst. See that you do not despise them. For I tell you that in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. saying, do not despise them. Do not, despise just means look down on them. Children are not an inconvenience. Children are not uh, uh, just some add-on that God's given us. They're not a necessary evil that we endure until, until they get to certain ages. Jesus is affirming here the Old Testament teaching, saying these are precious gifts, not just because I gave them to you, but because they have a purpose of being sharpened as arrows and launched out. So do not look down on them. Do not put your needs, desires ahead of theirs. That's what it would mean to despise. Do not just think that... um, 
here's, here's how I put it. Sometimes, sometimes when I give my testimony, I, I, I don't have a real exciting testimony. Sometimes you might say, so, so I always say, you know, by the time I was 12, I had developed a real drug problem. I had been drugged to church every Sunday night. I had been drugged every Sunday morning. I had been drugged to family devotions. I had been drugged to uh, little Christian camps and readings. It was a serious drug problem. Because the mentality, and this is, this is the default mentality. Look, if you just drag them to Christian stuff, then they'll get it. It'll rub off. The magic genie. You know, just get them to show up. Sprinkle the pixie dust on them, and they're going to be these powerhouses. And it just doesn't work. Kid, I spent years having to recover from that. And it's happening at an alarming rate. Just being associated with Christian things, it does nothing to help a kid be lit up for Jesus. It's a way, I think a way we despise them is just think, well, we don't really need to think about them or go out of our way to, to, to make something great for them. We just got to just drag them along. Just have something. And we want to take that and turn that upside down. And, and, and I think it's what Jesus does. It's not only do not despise, he, he takes it further. Um, uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 36. Or, yeah, let's do that one. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, who, I mean, you got to listen. Listen to what he says. Whoever receives, let me tell you what receives means. Give, care, love, teach. That's the literal meaning of the word. Gives, cares, loves, teaches. So he took a child, put him in their midst, took him in his arms, and he says, whoever receives, gives to, cares for, loves, teaches, one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. That is a powerful statement. Jesus is saying in Jesus' own words, not only are you not wasting your life, but when you invest your life in the next generation, you are directly investing in me and connecting and receiving me in a way you can't any other way. I mean, if that wouldn't cause us to relook at everything we do, I don't know, I don't know what would. Luke 18, one more. Now that we're bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. Jesus repeatedly turned the eyes of his followers to the next generation. And said, you better welcome them, you better honor them, you better receive them. Do not look down on them. Do not make it hard for them. One of my favorite little quips for reminding me to not make it hard for them is Rodney Dangerfield talks about when he's grown up. And he says, ma'am, my parents when I was growing up, they moved a lot. But I always found them. It's kind of what we do to our kids, I think, spiritually. Is... 
man, I hope they find us. I hope they keep up. I, I hope they figure this out. But let's make it hard for them. Instead of, I think Jesus would say, I mean, you take these scriptures. He said, make every effort to make it as accessible, to, as, as, as exciting, compelling, real, tangible to the next generation as you possibly can. When you do that, you're doing it unto me. When you do that, you're not wasting your life. When you do that, you're part of something that matters. Let's just talk practically. Because at some point, you gotta, you got you, you to gotta make all this practical. And, 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 and say, okay, well, well, what would that mean? And I'm going to talk about it in a collective sense. What what could it maybe mean for a church, especially a church that's got a blank canvas? We don't have anything going on other than a crowd of hay bales out here for kids. Okay, That's it. So it's blank. It's wide open. It would be easy to just say, well, just do what we've always done. What have we done in our other churches? or Instead of, we want to step back and say, okay, if we took this seriously... What could that mean? What might that mean? And by no means do we have it even remotely figured out. We've got some thoughts. We've got some ideas. Our whole hope in all of this is that it wells up and bubbles out from within. That it's not us, few of us in leadership showing up saying, we've got to figure it out. Here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. It's us saying, look, this is how we understand what God wants. How do we do this? We'll, we'll throw out some ideas, but you bring your, let's make this better. Let's dig into this. This is our chance. This is a golden opportunity to say, God, how do we do this different? What would it look like for a church to really have in its DNA the next generation, investing in the next generation? So let me just go uh, uh, through a few things with you. Um, I want to... Um, well, here's the statement. You've got it on the card in front of you, but I'm just going to read it. We care more. And remember, we put all these as more than statements. They're value statements, not good and bad. It's saying we value something even more. We care more about relating to the current culture than remaining tied to the culture of the past. We value the culture of the past. We think the historic culture of the past is, is profoundly important. We don't throw that out. What we are saying, though, is we're not going to just do things the way we've always done them. Do things that make us comfortable if we've been Christians for a long time. We are going to adapt to the current culture. We want them to see it's not just a faith that worked in the past. It's a faith that works now in the present. Contextualizing is the word. It's what missionaries do. When you go and you're a missionary, you study the group you're trying to reach, and you adapt. You don't adapt the message. You adapt the methods. So you say, look, we have some answers. We have some answers this group we think needs to hear. In this case, kid, the next generation. We have some answers, if you've been a Christian, a follower of Jesus, we think they need. So our one choice is go try to cram these answers down their throat and tell them you will swallow this. It's good for you. Or you say contextualizing is saying, we're going to give you those answers. You may not even know that you have yet the questions, but we're going to do it in a way that makes sense to you. We're going to try to do it in a way that makes sense to you. And, and the past, history, past, how you, how you found Jesus, how you related to him as a kid, how you did growing up is important. 
But the past is important if it's a, it's a guiding post, not a hitching post. Not something that keeps you tied up and causes you to, to just say, well, it worked for me, so we're going to make it work. But saying, no, how do we take those things and adapt them to this culture? Francis Schaeffer uh, said this, because one, here's one of the ways it affects things. One of the, one of the ways, and I'm not going to get real into this one, but it, it, it affects how we do our, our corporate services. It needs to affect, I, I guess I'll put it that way, how we do our corporate services. Because when you do a corporate service, I mean, you may take as many people as we have here right now. Obviously, there's all kinds of different desires when it comes to style of music, when it comes to how we engage the word, when it comes to everything that we do. Everybody's going to have an opinion. My opinion is we collectively ought to say, what do we think would most connect with the next generation? And are we, the rest of us, willing to say we will adapt to that, not the message, but we will adapt the, the, the method, how this gets to, we want us to make sense. Let me, because you will disregard me on that and say that I don't know what I'm talking about. I'll quote somebody more important, okay? Francis Schaefer. Everybody okay with Francis Schaefer? Before I read it, you got to say that you're in. Okay, here's what he said. You got to listen to this careful. If the church is what it should be, young people will be there. But they will not just be there, in quotes. They will be there with the blowing of horns and the clashing of high-sounding cymbals, and they will come dancing with flowers in their hair. That's his definition of what ought to be going on in church. And he goes on to say, if that's not happening, then you're a church on your way to death. If what you're doing collectively is in drawing in the next generation, but not just there, there with energy, it's connecting with them, then you're on the path to demise. So what do you do? What do you do if you're going to get practical? I think, you know, we could talk about the, the corporate service aspect of it a lot, but, but I won't get into that more. I think you, you get the idea there. Um, let me tell you a few things we've thought about. We've wondered, what would it be like if, as a, as a, as a church, you know, we plan in the fall um, to get a little more organized, at least get walls, you know, all the way around uh, somewhere. Um, we're we're going to have to do some things to get a little more uh, organized and do some things. Uh, but, but we have a real resistance to... To um, I've grown up in church my whole life. I, it's easy to just put together a plan. Well, here's all the things we could do as a church and fill out all the programs and all the things that we could do that would appeal to people and you just do them. We don't want to do that. Here's what we've wondered. What if, what if we said, look, let's build what we do around the next generation, but let's not just invite, let's plead with everybody, whatever generation you're in, to be part of this with us. So one part of that is, is our corporate gathering. But let's talk outside the corporate gathering. What if we said, look, we, we, we want the next generation that's with us. We, we want them to, to, to be on mission. We don't want them to be self-absorbed. We want them to know what it means to serve. We want them to be part of helping extend the kingdom of God. We want them to participate in the mission. 
So what normally would happen is, well, let's send the kids out to do some projects. They can, you know, go do something, go do some fundraisers, go do something, but let us know how it goes. What if we said, look, as a church, when it comes to all the things we could do locally on mission, ways we could serve and do, we're not going to do any organized things unless they're built around kids. Now, here's what I mean by that. What if we said, look, instead of filling our calendar with all the things we could go do as a church and, and pat ourselves on the back, what if we just said, look, once a, once a month, every other month, and again, this is just an idea. So I hope afterwards when we're eating and beyond, you just feed us other ideas, improve on this. But we're wondering, what if we said, look, let's, let's find the very best way we can. Let's find some people in the group that are passionate about it. The very best way we can to serve a, the deepest need we can find in the community. The community could be Central Oregon or whatever. What's that deepest need? Let's find a way that we could build a way for us to serve. We're going to serve for a day there. Let's just devote a day or a half a day. But let's build it around something that kids and students and adults can be involved with. I want my kids, I need my kids to see you, to see a whole group of people saying, yeah, we want to give, lay our lives down for people we don't even know. We want to go serve. We want to serve the neediest and the most hurting. I want my kids to participate in that. I don't want them to hear about it. I don't want them to go do it on their own. I want them to do it with me, with you. So we're saying, well, instead of doing a whole bunch of stuff, what if we put our energies into saying, could we build some experience, some mission experiences that are built around our kids and all of us participate and be involved? Second thing we've wondered is, what if we did that every other month? What if every other month we said, look, we're not going to have a bunch of stuff going on as a church. We're not going to be having a bunch of, 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 banquets and musicals and things that that you can do we're just not going to do that we want to put our time into this but we want we want i want i'll just talk again i'll just be self selfish i got four kids i want my kids to experience church as an extended family i want them to experience and say man my mom and dad i can't just write them off as being nuts because there's a whole bunch of other people that feel like they do it's not just them. There's other people who get excited. There's other people who, who love each other and love Jesus. And maybe they're not so crazy. I want this to be my kids' extended family. Well, that doesn't just happen if we just show up to a church service and, and they go to their thing and we're all gone. So we're saying, well, so what if we serve together? That might be the best way. But what if in addition to that, what if every other month, so once a month, we have something built around family, but we're saying we need everybody. We need, we need grandparent figures. We need everybody, aunts and uncles involved in this. So what if, what if it was, remember, we're going to do something that builds that family feel. We say we want to build traditions. We want to do things that, that our kids, man, they look forward to. And it's, it's for them. They're part of it. They're not just going and doing their own thing. I don't know what those would be. We've got a bunch of ideas. And we're batting around. But you, you, again, would have better ideas. We want to talk about that, though. And then say, let's get everybody to be part of that. And let's build some things that are these powerful experiences. I think people outside the church, in the community, that's one of the things they're most looking for. A place to belong. A place that feels like family. And far too often, church doesn't feel that way. Another thought we've had is, you know, we could ramp up as we start the the fall and say, okay, we got to get a whole bunch of, of home groups going and small groups and, and all this. Here's what I'm more wondering. 
Again, we want to talk about this. Yeah, we're going to have some groups, and we want to have some pretty strategic groups that are preparing future leaders, and we're going to talk about that in some of the weeks to come. But what if, instead of saying, hey, I mean, this is what cracks me up when you think of church things. People sit around in their small groups, and part of what they talk about in their small groups is how they wish they had more time with their families. Right? It's like, yeah. You know, let's get in a group and talk about how we should really be doing family time with our kids. We're wondering, well, should maybe that come first? Should we say, look, don't, if you got kids at home, don't get in a small group right now. That is your small group. And could we help you? Are there some ways we could help you make that a really strong experience? Or maybe it's your family and one other family getting together and say, let's be a small group together with our kids. And and could we really tie that in? And I don't have time because I'm getting sweaty in the sun here. Um, But I don't have time to break down for you some stuff I'm pretty excited about, uh, what I think we're going to be doing in the fall as far as focusing on in the teaching and how that might all tie together and and could really equip us with with kids. Some of you say, well, I don't have kids. Well, what if some of you joined in with some of our families or some of you? I mean, it's pretty endless, and there's some things we could talk about. What we're wondering at the core of that, though, is instead of just firing up a bunch of programs, is saying, no, family comes first. Family comes first. Can we equip you to do that really well and explore how we might do that? We could go on and on and on about ideas. What I hope drops for you is the idea that we want to build something that, that really goes after the next generation. Doesn't just say we value them, but demonstrates that in everything we do. And, it, and whatever, whatever it ends up being, it has to get practical. It has to get practical. One of my favorite stories.